So today we're, we're blessed to have, I told people we're having Dr. Phil speak this morning. They didn't believe me. But that's really his name, Phil Brasswell. And he, he's coming to speak this morning. Listen, I was so blessed yesterday just hearing him speak. But I'm going to give you a little bit of understanding. He is the, our, our leader of Destiny, which is the organization of which we are licensed through our ministerial license. We're part of Global, Global Merge with Destiny. And he's doing such a fantastic job of bringing people together and oversight to churches and helping churches to grow and helping churches to become everything that God has called them to be. And we're super blessed today to have him stay over him and his beautiful wife and stay and just minister to us today and and it's a, such a privilege to have him in the house so I, I want you today I want you to give him big hands he comes and let's just bless this man of God and uh, so glad to have him Amen. I love you man. God bless you good morning everybody what a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord. How many feel the presence of God here? Isn't that good? I tell you what, we ought to give the Lord a good hand clap because it's a big deal to be in the presence of God. Amen. <clears throat> what a, uh, oh, thank you. I like the, the branding. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, so I'll make, I'll make sure I hold it this way when I take a drink. And I'm, I'm, I've been coughing and sputtering a bit, so. What an incredible church you have with incredible pastors and incredible leaders. Amen. And what a pleasure it has been to be here this weekend and have a chance to get a little better acquainted. And uh, we've been all busy and uh, been getting acquainted on the run. But, uh, but you guys are blessed, and it's such an honor. I just have to echo what Pastor has mentioned and say thank you to all that served with your heart and uh, all that uh, just were so generous with your time and efforts to make... Uh, pastors and leaders feel welcome and wanted and at home and it was such a special weekend and so uh, we have enjoyed it immensely and uh, are very grateful I think <clears throat> how many of you believe that you have the best pastors in the entire world right here in this church amen amen I can tell I can tell and man the food oh, honestly the, we're from Arkansas so y'all pray for us okay but uh, the food was so good we rented an apartment and we're just going to stay for a while honestly if y'all keep cooking like that it doesn't take a lot of spiritual discernment look me and know I like to eat that's like you don't need a prophetic gift to know that and uh, man we had a great time and uh, the food was just awesome and uh, we, the hospitality was even better the excellence with which it was all done. I, I tell leaders all the time that excellence is the language of hospitality. Excellence is the language. When we do what we do at a high level and we do it in an excellent way, we're telling people that have not been there yet when they get there that we were thinking about them and waiting for them to come. And so there's nothing in the world like being excellent and you guys absolutely killed it. And uh, we're honored to be here today. I am delighted to be with my best friend in the entire world and uh, the, the finest person I've ever known uh, that I think God ever put on the planet, and that's my wife, Kath. Kath, stand and smile. Would you do that? Uh, let's just let me uh, adore you with my eyes today. You are amazing, honestly. This is an amazing woman. We've just celebrated 20 years of marriage uh, back in November, and uh, and uh, I wished I had time today to tell you the whole story of how Kath and I got together. Uh, my first wife passed away suddenly after 17 years of marriage, about 21 years ago. And uh, Kath had been a college student of mine when I was in the classroom and one of the most godly women I'd ever met. And so uh, she stepped into our world, a single preacher with a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And when I asked her to marry me, she said, I won't marry you, I'll marry y'all. And, uh, and she they literally exchanged vows with our children and rings in our ceremony. And, uh, and so she has loved them when they, they rise up and call her blessed. And she became a mom to them. And, uh, and now we have five grandsons together. I know that's a shock to you. You can't imagine how people as young as we are could have grandchildren. <laughs> But we have five grandsons together, and our son was here. He pastors a great church in Lomita, Texas. And so we had a board meeting. He's on our board. And we had a board meeting for a couple of days before the Connect event, so he came over. And so we just found out that our daughter-in-law is pregnant. So our daughter has two boys, and Drew has 
uh, Noah, Jonah, and Judah, and we had asked him to stop because we can't afford Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so, <clears throat> but we just found out that she's pregnant. And so how many of y'all want to bet that we are hoping for a girl? And if we get one, she's going to be rent. I'm telling you, she ain't going to be worth anything. But we're going to love her. And we have a lot of spiritual sons and daughters in the gospel, and they've given us granddaughters. And so, uh, so we, we have that side covered. But anyway, uh, we're excited, and we're, we're a loving family, and we love leaders. For 25 years, I've been traveling. Um, during part of that time, I was working in a variety of capacities with Christian colleges. And I, I, was a, I am probably the purest church nerd you've ever seen in your life. So my dad pastored for 50 years. I was literally born in the middle of a revival. Uh, my dad took, he was preaching in West Virginia. We're from Arkansas. My dad was preaching a revival in West Virginia, and mom was great with child, me. And uh, so he took her to the hospital. She went into later. He took her to the hospital and left to go preach that night and told her he'd be back. And I was born that night while the revival. That was back in the day when doctors and women had babies. Men smoked cigarettes and sat in the lobby and talked those stories and waited, you know, for the babies to come. So there wasn't any of that Lamar stuff going on, you know, back in those days. And so... Uh, so he was preaching the fire down while I was, while mom was screaming and hollering, and I came into the world right in the middle of a revival. And my granddad pastored for 60 years before him. And so ministry goes back in our family, honestly, from what I'm told, five generations. I mean, so it's way back into the mid-1800s. Well, I had a, uh, one of my great-great-great-grandfathers five, six times back was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher, and I went to a Methodist university, so Kath was raised Baptist, and so we're kind of a Heinz 57. You just, if you're here today, no matter what your background is, we got you covered. We, we get you. We understand you. No sweat. No problem. Whatever your particular theological persuasion is, we can handle it. No problem. But we are honored to be here, and so 20 years ago, uh, the Lord called us to, to a more intentional work with leaders, and we began to pastor pastors. So on a daily basis, that's pretty much what we do, along with a great team of about 14 or 15 folks that work alongside us. And so we love leaders and pastors, and how, how many know that everybody needs a pastor? I said everybody needs a pastor, right? Amen. Pastors need pastors, too. Amen. They have the same problems that all of you have. It's just they have learned to hide it a bit better. And so, uh, so they need somebody in their life they can trust. And, and uh, so while I get to preach on weekends, most of our work is done through the week as we work with churches and leaders around the country. We work with some of the greatest churches in America. And uh, I will join with you in terms of the worship team. Honestly, Peyton, you guys kill it. And I know good worship. I'm in some of the absolute best worship environments in the world, and there is nothing lacking here. You guys are awesome. You are blessed with your worship team. Amen. I, they messed me up yesterday really bad. <clears throat> and it was wonderful today. Well, how many love the Word of the Lord? Yes. Amen. I love the Word of the Lord. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that I believe in Christianity and in the power of the Word in the same way that I believe in the sun and its power when it rises. He said it's not that uh, I see the sun, but it's that when the sun rises, it's by the sun that I see everything else. And, and that's how the Word of God is in our life. It's not so much that we see the Word, but it's that through the lens of the Word, we can see and interpret everything else. How many believe the Word of God speaks to every area of your life? There's nothing that's left untouched by the power of the Word of God. If you will open it up and let it, it will, listen, it won't be just you reading it. It will read you. Amen. It will tell you things about yourself you didn't even know about yourself. And I love God's Word. So let's get into the Word of the Lord today. And uh, I, I was trying to think as I was sitting up front, okay, what passage shall we jump in at? And so um, I have kind of gone through a series of thoughts and uh, have a few notes prepared. And uh, is it okay if I, can I just be at home today? And so I'm, I'm kind of a teacher that gets a little excited. Sometimes I get excited, it seems like I'm mad. I'm not mad at anybody or anything, you know. I just get excited about God's Word. And so there's times that I bounce in and out of teaching, preaching. And so uh, I don't want to confuse you today. But we'll just open this up and just let it, let it be whatever it is. Amen. 
Uh, I'd like you to open with me to the book of Romans, and I'm going to begin reading toward the end of the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church. Paul was anticipating a visit to Rome and had never been there, as best we can tell. Certainly he hadn't been to the organized church that had uh, kind of uh, cohesed around a variety of people who had been part of the Christian movement and had now kind of converged in Rome. I tell you, I love the stories of people. Anybody like to watch some documents? You know, I think one of the reasons reality TV has taken over so much in our culture is because we really like to see real people. We want to hear real stories, and even the, I mean, and the thing is, they mess with us, right? Because they tell us it's reality TV, and y'all know it ain't reality, right? I mean, when's the last time you had twelve people move into the house together, and you know, it's not reality. But anyway, they tell us it's reality TV. And really, when you read the Bible, you're kind of looking at the first epic reality TV show that you could ever imagine. There's so many intersections of people's stories and lives. This morning early, I was reading in the book of Mark how Mark was talking about Simon of Serene who carried the cross for Jesus. And he mentions just in a passing reference, it's just a passing reference, and that's the cool thing about the Scripture because it's like some of that stuff's written with this foregone conclusion that you know the whole story, and we don't. And so he says about, and they compelled one Simon of Serene uh, to carry the cross, whose father is Alexander and Rufus, and he just passes on. And you ever wondered, well, how did he know who Simon of Serene's kids were? When Mark wrote his gospel, most people consider it to be Peter's gospel because Mark was traveling with Paul and then was sent back to Jerusalem. And, and the best we can tell is he spent the balance of his ministry career working alongside of Peter as a, an assistant and recording Peter's recollections. And the, the gospel of Mark, which is the oldest of the four gospels, emerged during that time. And so it just makes me wonder. I don't have any Bible for it, and I can't prove it. But it's interesting to me when you look at it, and, and he re references this obscure man that's only mentioned pretty much once or twice in the Bible, the guy that was compelled to carry the cross for Jesus, right? And he's in the middle. He's, he's a Jewish proselyte from a North African country, and he's come for the Passover and in the process of minding his own business, probably had two boys with him who had come either for their bar mitzvah or had come to, to celebrate Passover, which tells us they were probably 12 years old or so. They come to Jerusalem, and in the middle of all the parades and the processions and the partying and all the stuff that's going on, typically in the feast days of Israel, he is thrust into this most unlikely of circumstance and compelled to carry the cross for this man who has been so, so tortured that he doesn't have the strength to carry his own crossbeam anymore. The prophet Isaiah would mention about Jesus prophetically that he was marred more than any man had ever been marred. Some of the best scholars and minds looking at historians and those who write, and there are writings about Jesus outside of the biblical context. But if you harmonize what happened in the scripture and what we read about in other sources, I mean, this man has been tortured and his, his body is brutalized beyond you, what you can imagine. So Simon touches the blood of Jesus. <laughs> what, wouldn't that have been interesting? I mean, can you imagine? We sing about it. We talk about it. We, but he literally intersects and engages. I mean, he carries that bloody beam, and he, maybe he bumps Jesus and feels his broken body. I, I don't know. But apparently the impact was so profound on this man that carried the cross of Jesus that, that Peter the apostle would be able to call his children by their first names. That's interesting to me. And then later, uh, the, the Bible tells us that the gospel under the persecution that's happening on the day of Pentecost, as a matter of fact, I don't want to forget that. On the day of Pentecost, it mentions that there were those who witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who were from, he says, every country under heaven, but he also includes Cyrene. Found that interesting. And it's often that when Jews traveled from the diaspora to the feast days that they wouldn't just go right back home because it's a long journey, right? So they would stay for the other feast. So maybe Simon gets there for the Passover. Jesus is crucified. He's trying to figure out what happened. He felt something maybe in that moment and he doesn't understand it theologically, has no understanding that that man was literally the Messiah. Maybe not at that point. 
He carries the cross for Jesus. He stays over for Pentecost, which was 50 days later. That's all penta means 50, 50 days after Passover. He stays for that two months or so waiting for the next feast and is perhaps present in the out, outer court of the temple when the Holy Spirit fell. He witnesses. And it's interesting because if you look at the history and just read the text for what it says, it's like in, there came a sound of a rushing mighty wind that filled the whole place where they were sitting. And there were devout men uh, of, of the Jews from every country under heaven, Luke says, as he records this story. And then he begins and he gets a list. And they were from here and from there and Arabians and Egyptians. And, and, the, and then he mentions Cyrenians. And then it, they were dazzled and amazed when each of them heard the people speaking in their native tongues. They heard them speaking in earthly languages that they knew it was miracle because they were all Galileans and Galileans are not known to be multilingual. So, I mean, when this miracle happens, perhaps Simon was one of those guys standing in the crowd. He's carried the cross for Jesus, y'all. He carried the cross for trying to figure out. He don't, hey, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of history to read back and fill in the blanks. He's trying to sort it all out. He don't know what it means. And, he, and But God is so gracious in His purpose for our lives that He puts Him in that moment of intersection and lets Him carry the cross. Then perhaps if we look at the circumstantial evidence, maybe He was in the outer court of the temple when the commotion and the house was shaken and the winds of the Holy Ghost blew in and cloven tongues of fire set up on the, all the Galileans who were gathered up in their colloquial group to pray. And when he witnesses that, he runs over and somebody looks at him who's a Galilean and says, maybe he gives witness to the fact that that man you carried the cross for was the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah that has been coming. And he didn't just come to ride in with a powerful army and take over and run the Romans out. He came to die as a servant and as a sacrifice. And you carried his cross. I don't know what was said, but whatever it was said, it was said in a language he could understand. And I know the God that I serve, he began to sort it out and make sense of it all for him. Amen. Now, that's my opinion. <laughs> and then it's interesting that a few chapters later in the book of Acts, we see that as the persecution began to erupt, in the church that the church left Jerusalem it didn't entirely leave but people various ones as a matter of fact Luke as he writes and he said and there were those who left after the persecution of Stephen and they preached the gospel but many of them preached only to the Jews but then there were those certain from certain Cretans and Cyrenians who preached also and traveled to Antioch and preached to the Greeks. And I love what Luke says. And he says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Yes. And so now we see that we're not exactly sure who. But now we see that the gospel is moved from Jerusalem to Antioch in Turkey. And that it's on the shoulders of Cyrenian converts who now have traveled to Turkey to preach the gospel to the Greeks. Oh, is it any church? Never underestimate your church. Amen. I said never underestimate what can happen in a gathering of believers. Amen. Never underestimate that. Because these gatherings of, gather, of people begin to gather in Antioch and hear the gospel. And perhaps Simon is preaching, I carried his cross. And he's raised from the dead. I witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied and that I saw it with my own eyes. He's alive. And they begin to believe. And sitting in the crowd is a young physician named Luke in Antioch. And also sitting next to him, here's his brother, Titus. And after the revival began to erupt in Antioch, they needed help teaching and training. So they sent back to the mother church in Jerusalem. And they said, well, the best man we know for that job is a man named Barnabas. And they bring Barnabas to Antioch. When Barnabas gets there, he says, all these folks are Greek and they don't understand the, the Jewish nature of how Christianity emerged from the background of Judaism. So we need some help. Is there anybody that's really good on their Jewish stuff that has gotten saved? Oh, wait, I heard of a man named Saul who had a Damascus Road experience and is living in Tarsus. And Barnabas sends for Saul and brings him to Antioch. 
And sitting in the crowd in Antioch are all the people who are going to be part of Paul's missionary future. Somebody say, well, the it's a small world after all. Oh, y'all can sing better than that. <laughs> I love it how the Bible courses all that together. You say, well, what does that have to do with where we're going today? Well, Paul then writes to the Romans, to, the, to the group that he hasn't visited yet, and he gives us what really has become the handbook of Christian doctrine, the book of Romans. It's been the cornerstone. It was the headwaters of the Reformation. It was the foundation of so much biblical understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the fundamental doctrines of Christianity come out of the book of Romans. And Paul writes this beautiful letter to them, explaining to them his particular persuasion about the gospel and what it means. And he's anticipating coming to visit them there but he gets toward the end of his letter and you get a glimpse into the heart of Paul and he begins to talk about people who impacted his ministry. And look at chapter 16, verse, uh, verse uh, 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all of the churches of the Gentiles owe their birth and much of their history to that man and woman. Greet them. Will you tell them Paul said hello? Likewise, greet the church that is in their house and greet my beloved uh, Epinatus, uh, who was the first fruits of Achaia for Christ. He said he got saved first. I remember that guy. And we see the story of not just the doctrine of Scripture, but of the real lives of people begin to emerge off the page. Well, as Paul gets on down through his greetings, he gets toward the end and he said, and oh, by the way, I heard Rufus was there. That was one of Simon's sons that I met in Antioch. He doesn't say it, but the implication is there. He said, greet Rufus also. He was chosen in the Lord. His family, what, a, what an honor to carry the cross. And he said, and by the way, greet his mom who had become like a mother to me. So he finishes his greetings, but then he gets to the end of the letter. And that's where we're going to drop for a moment. So you, are you okay with history? Everybody had their history lesson? Okay, I'm almost through with the history lesson. He gets toward the end of the... Anybody ever write a letter and when you get to the end you realize, wait a minute, there's something else I wanted to say. Matter of fact, it's so common in letters that it's often PS, which means postscript. It's like, oh, I have a thought that I, I wanted to intend. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. He gets to the end of the letter. He greets everyone that he knows there that means so much to him. He's a bit nostalgic. He's reminiscing of what they have done and what they've meant in his life. And then he gets to the end. He says, oh, by the way, there's one more thing that I want to mention to you. And we open that toward verse number 17 verse number 17 and there it's a postscript as he ends the letter he said all that stuff I've told you let me add something else to it before I go he said and now I want to urge you brother note those that cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them take note of those he said you need to make a list how many of you when you got saved you realized that there were some folks that you need to make a list about that you needed to not hang around with anymore you know what I'm saying Everybody in your past, it's not in their best interest for you to be saved. I mean, some of them, it changed some of your lifestyle, you know what I'm saying? And so you have to make a note of that person. Because they're, they're, they're not leading you toward a deeper relationship with God. They're, they don't understand what's happened in your life. And they're going to be working against you instead of working with you to develop you toward look at your neighbor and say, sometimes you've got to move away. Same thing in Rome. Paul said, I urge you. Listen, all those folks that are causing division and offense, stay away from them. You, you know, you didn't get, you're not going to get better with them. Verse, verse 18, for those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and with smooth words and flattering speech declare or deceive the hearts of the simple. But your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, he says, I'm glad on your behalf. I want, he said, let me give you some advice. I want you to be wise in what is good and I want you to be simple in what is bad. Boy, that's pretty deep theology right there, isn't it? I'm, I'm pretty sure I learned that in kindergarten. It's like, do what's right, don't do what's not right. So that's it, Paul. It's like, okay, you're going to give us a, I want to give you some fatherly apostolic anointed counseling. Don't do what's wrong and do what's right. 
That's pretty much the size of it. How many of you know in your life that kind of what it boiled down to when at the end of the day? It was learning to know. But he's, it's more than that. He says, become an expert in what is good and be ignorant in terms of what is evil. Do you know that is part of the, the insidious strategy of the enemy in our culture today? And that is to make, right the opposite, make us and our children experts in what is evil and ignorant of what is good. So maybe it was deeper advice than we thought. Because I think that'd be pretty good advice for our five-year-olds and our six-year-olds and our 14-year-olds and our 18-year-olds and our 60-year-olds. Can I get an amen? Some of us know a whole, much, a whole lot more about what's evil than we ought to. And it's not good for you. It's some of that stuff it's better that you don't know anything about. But, you know, in our culture today, kids don't have to ask parents. They don't have to ask parents about sex. They just ask Google. They don't have to ask parents about money and finance and dating and all that. They just ask Google. Google's like become God. I mean, you know what? Google knows everything. Is everywhere. Well, no, he's not. Or she. He or she. It's not. I still believe that when we're trying to answer the great questions of life, we need to go to God first. We need to go to God first. And how do you do that? You go to what the Bible says. What does God's Word say about marriage and family and dating and money and sex and right and wrong? If you want to have a successful, abundant life, find out what this Word says about your life and then try to live that as best you can by the grace of God. When you make a mistake, repent. Let His grace wash over you and get up and dust yourself off and get back at it. Can I get an amen? Amen. Get back at it. It's, <clears throat> it's not rocket science, and you don't need a thesaurus and a magic decoder ring. Just find out what's good and do it. Find out what's good and do it, and find out what you ought not do and don't do that. But that's not the only thing he said. He says, your obedience has become known to all, therefore I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And then he gives this incredible promise, and it's a bit ironic. He says, and the God of peace will crush Amen. Satan under your feet. Think about the irony. A peaceful God who will go Rambo on the devil. That's pretty cool, isn't it? As a matter of fact, I love the Greek word that's used. It's a phrase, actually, that's combined into one word in the Greek. They translate it as a phrase, will crush. But that word in the Greek, and this is just a quick little Greek lesson, that word in the Greek is suntribo. I mean, does that, I don't know whether that, but doesn't that sound like a late night fitness infomercial? Like, no. Like, what are you into right now? Well, I'm into suntribo. It's like, no, I was into tybo. Now I'm into suntribo. Soon Trebo. And they translate it, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. But that's a little bit of a mistranslation because the word shortly in the Greek is not the idea of a period of time. Like, hey, the Lord's going to come get you out of that mess in a little bit. That's not what it means. It's not saying, hey, hang on there, hold on, and God's not going to forget you, and it's not going to be too long until right in the middle of something's going on in your life, God's going to come and He's going to crush the work of Satan in your life. Now, the word shortly there in the Greek means like, <clears throat> How many of there's things going on in your life that what you need the Lord to do is you need to do it like right now? I mean, he said, and the God of peace shall soon crush. <clears throat> in other words, like a cobra strikes. All right. That's right. You've been the first service in history you've ever been that God's been defined like a cobra strike. But that's exactly the way the language is used here. Can I tell you there are moments in your life that the enemy will try to bring you into bondage, but if you will trust God and you will believe him and you will allow the word of God to speak into your life, there'll come a moment that he will destroy and quickly, quickly, quickly crush Satan in your life. Amen. And that's kind of what I'd like to talk. Okay, so we're shifting gears. Everybody get your stick shift. We're about to shift gears, okay? I didn't see anybody shift, but it's okay. I want to talk to you about how God's going to do that. How's God going to destroy the works of Satan in your life? 
Let me just cut to the chase and get right to the payload. He's going to do it by the power of the anointing. Uh, you don't hear a lot of preachers these days preaching about the anointing. But would you give me about five minutes to talk with you about the anointing? In the book of Isaiah, about chapter number 10, Isaiah is writing to Israel who is about to be persecuted by the Assyrians. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says to the nation of Israel. He says the Assyrian, he calls them singularly. It's a country, but he calls them singularly. It's almost like there is a spirit behind it. He says the Assyrian is going to come and he's going to raise his staff over you and strike you. And as he's striking you, he's going to do it like Egypt did when you were in bondage. In other words, if I kind of take a little commentary there, he says that the Assyrian is going to try to put you back in bondage and make a slave out of you again. And that's going to happen. He says it's going to happen. It's coming to you. But he said in that day, there will come a moment, he says, where the yoke that the Assyrian puts on your neck is going to be destroyed by the anointing. That it's going to be an anointed move of God that's going to destroy the yoke of bondage. Can I, if I can use this parenthetically, if I can use it this way. Let me say to you that the Assyrian to us is kind of like the world and its system. Anybody in this world and that you're living in the world system that you know it's not satisfied to just let you live in peace and harmony. It wants to bring you into bondage. It wants to put you back into a hard yoke. Is anybody in the room with me today? I'm talking about life will jack you up. Life will mess you up. And in the process of being messed up, and jacked up, they will put you, this world system will put you into a yoke of bondage like the Assyrians tried to do Israel and like Egypt tried to do Israel when they were in Egyptian bondage. But I love what he says. He said, but God will raise his staff over you. And when he raises his staff, he'll do it like he did in Midian's victory. And he'll do it like he did with the river of the, the river Jordan and the, and the, the, the sea of God, the Red Sea when it parted. I mean, I kind of know where I'm going, so I, it makes me want to just get Pentecostal for a minute and have a praise break. Because I deal with a lot of bound people. I deal with a lot of preachers that are bound. I deal with a lot of families that are broken. I deal with a lot of saints. Anybody in this room that you know there's no pedigree in here, right? There's no, nobody here can claim some sort of high We've all descended from a crooked farmer and a drunken sailor. All of us, every one of us. Adam and Noah. Right, I mean, we, we, I, get, I go in some places, man, folks strut in like they're really something. And I know their background. I know the same Adam and Noah that they came from is the same Adam and Noah I came from. And we can get fooled by the pomp and circumstance and all the people that walk in with them. But, you know, we know they ain't all that. Look at your neighbor just kindly and say, you know, you ain't all that, really. You ain't all that. I don't care. You can been speaking in tongues since you were three months old. It don't matter. The devil still wants to put you in bondage. He still wants to break a relationship and make you mess you up in the head. He still wants to take you through a trauma and a crisis and put shackles on your hands and you can learn how to be a better person. You can get 22 steps of a more fulfilling life. But I'm going to tell you what, it's not that. That's good. It can be helpful. But I'll tell you what will change your life. It's when the anointing power of the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and the Word of God... And I love it. It doesn't just say it will lift the yoke. Some modern translations and a bit more progressive say that it will lift the yoke. But those ancient guys, I think, got it right when they said he will pulverize the yoke. In other words, he's not going to just lift it off your neck. He's going to take it off and bring it over here and swiftly crush that yoke that the enemy some of you have been through divorce some of you have been through trauma of financial setbacks some of you have been rejected some of you have been victimized by a child as a child and I don't minimize any of that or any of your story or what you've gone through but I'm telling you we serve a God who through the power of his word and the anointing of the Holy Spirit can take that yoke of bondage off of you and stomp it and destroy it once and for all yeah I, I just I'm old school enough to believe that. I believe it. I don't believe you have to be a drug addict all your life. I don't believe you have to be an alcoholic and that's the label you'll carry to the grave. No, I, that is not true according to the Word of God. Paul said it this way, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. 
I mean, the, the, the old stuff that passed away is not the stuff you used to do. It's who you used to be. Because as long as it's just about a habit or a practice or a behavior, you can pick that stuff back up. I used to do this and I used to do that. No, the accurate, more accurate theological position would be is that person that died on the cross with Jesus used to be a liar and a drug addict and an alcoholic. But see, I went and died with Jesus on the cross. That person was crucified with Jesus. Are y'all in the room with me, I'm saying? Somebody say co-crucifixion. You don't hear that talked about a lot, but it is a very accurate theological understanding. We say, watch this, we say a lot, well, Jesus died for my sins. It's true. Every word true. How many are thankful today he died for your sins? But it's more than that, y'all. He didn't just die for you. He died as you. Think about that for a minute. I said he didn't just die for you. He died as you. You say, you got Bible for that? Yeah, a lot, as a matter of fact. I read that. I just quoted that verse for you out of, out of 2 Corinthians, you know. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, old things. About, but if you go just about two verses before, Paul says it this way. He says, for the love of Christ compels us, for we reckon thus. If one died for all, then all died. Some of you have been saved and you've believed the Lord for salvation and you, you know that He has forgiven you of your sins but you're still clinging and struggling with that yoke of identity for what you did and what you used to. You haven't recovered and it's like you're still spending a lifetime recovering from what you did or what was done to you. But I'm telling you in Jesus Christ... That's why Paul says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but now the life that I live, I live based on the power and the person of the one who gave himself for me. Are y'all in the room? And that's just not a couple proof texts. It's the concept of co-crucifixion is all over the Bible. That he didn't just die for us, he died as us. You see, the sinner that you are didn't get off scot-free. People say, well, I'm just no sinner saved by grace. No, you're a new creation by the grace of God. That sinner is dead. That sinner is dead. That sinner is dead. Amen. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Thank God for that. Amen. I've been crucified with Christ. He says in another place, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This, this image in the mind of the Apostle Paul is that God collected all of this stuff in, I don't know how he did it, but he like intertwined all this stuff, intertwined all this stuff and brought it into the person of Jesus. And Jesus at the cross became sin. One translation says the sin bearer. But Jesus suffered not just for sin, but as every sinner who's ever lived and will ever live. The grace of God works without impugning the character of God because Jesus paid a debt you couldn't pay. And the justice of the universe was satisfied because in the mind of God we were all put in the body of Jesus and crucified. Are y'all in the room with me? All crucified with Him. You see here's, here, and again I don't want to, and I know our time's slipping away, I don't want to go awry theologically, but I do want to help you understand that you know, people say, well, I have students come to me and say, okay, so is God just and holy or is He merciful? And I would say both. He is both. It's not either or, it's both and. He is both and. But I will, I will concede this to them. Like, if you come to my house and steal my TV, I can forgive you for that, but it don't make it right. Right? 
I mean, that's gracious and merciful. And, and He could be gracious and merciful and not be holy and just. He could allow His compassionate heart to push Him toward a, a point that He crossed the line into what is not right. And God cannot do that. So if you come and stole my television, I say, don't worry about it. I got three. I got one in every room, and I got it on my phone. It's no sweat. I can live with that. And that would be merciful and kind, but it wouldn't be right. The only way to make it right is if you buy me another one. Just as nice as the one I had. Now I can both forgive you, and I got my TV back. So God had this quandary is how can he be both merciful and gracious? He always had a heart to forgive. But how could he do it without violating his holiness, character, and justice? And allowing you, it's kind of like when your kids do something they shouldn't do. And you want to just, man, I'd like to let them go. I'd like to let them get them off, you know, and just forget it. But I know it's not good for them. And the truth is, it's not good for me because then I know they always got by with it. And next time we have an argument or a little problem to arise, I'm tempted to go back and say, yeah, here you go again. You remember when you did that? You Remember the other day? Yeah, I said it was all right, but it comes to my mind now and I'm mad about it again. <laughs> but if the child fixes what they broke, now you don't have a place to say, Oh, I've thought about it again, and now I'm angry about it again. It has been settled. So you understand that God's both just and holy and gracious and merciful. And the only way to, to bring the two into alignment and harmony was for what was broken in sin to be fixed by a man because it was a man that broke it. That's why God came in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a sinless life. He earned, He didn't get it by grace. He earned the favor of God as a covenant man and then laid His life down as a representative for all of us. All of us were executed in our sins in the body of Jesus on the cross. Now the devil don't have any place that he can accuse us, nor can God say, well, here you go again. No, that person's dead. I know I used to lie, but I don't lie anymore and the liar in me died at the cross with Jesus. I know you used to think I'm going to go smoke a joint with you, but that person, I know I look the same, but I'm not the same. I'm not going to go smoke a joint, y'all, because <laughs> or whatever. I mean, you fill in the blank, you know? I mean, it's like, I'm trying to be, you know, they tell you as a speaker, you want to kind of fill your crowd out, you know? <laughs> you want to kind of hit where they're used, what, the, what they can relate to. So I'm just trying to think here, what else, what other metaphor could I use? <laughs> No, oh, I can't do that, brother. I would, but I got a problem with that. <laughs> yeah. Y'all see what I'm talking about? But we don't know that. Often we don't know that as believers. So we get saved and we believe for salvation, but we never believe for the death part, that we died. You know why we baptize people? Why? We, that's what you do with a dead body. You bury them. So when you're going to the waters of baptism, we're saying to the world that you died on the cross with Jesus. We say it this way. You are now identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord. What does that mean? That means in the mind of God, you were put in Jesus. You were killed in your sins. You paid the penalty through Him for your sin and your rebellion and disobedience. That person died. We bury you in this old world, never to come up again and raise you in newness of life like Jesus was raised in the resurrection. And now Paul says it this way. Now you are not independent on your own. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. 34 times in the book of Ephesians, 30 times in the book of Romans, Paul pounds this drum. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in, in Christ. I am in Christ. That makes me acceptable. I'm accepted, not because Philip Brass feels good, because y'all, I'm really not. But it's not about if I can measure up now. It's about the fact that 
I'm not good, but he's good, and I'm in him. That makes me acceptable. But Paul didn't leave it there. In the book of Colossians, he said, but also he's in you. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, Jesus Christ, now it's not just you and him. He's in you. One makes you acceptable. The other makes you powerful. Now it's not just your power for living. It's him living in you, living through you, that gives you the power to overcome. I need a better amen than that. Because that's, that's pretty good teaching for a young guy like me. I don't know about all that. It's like, wow. And the God of peace shall soon crush. Isaiah said it'll be like the Assyrian. Tried the world bring you back into bondage, but the anointing will destroy it. Jesus said it this way. I'm moving down the home stretch. Just hang with me one more minute. Jesus said it this way. Coming out of the wilderness where he'd been tempted by the devil. He goes to Nazareth and he preaches and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he hath anointed me. If there's any change that happens in your life today, even in thoughts or ideas or more dramatic than that in this service, it will not be because of the words I share. It will be the Holy Spirit taking the word and it's the anointing that will do that in your life. And the thing that makes this worship, I've heard good guitar players, good singers. I listen to them. All. I've got Amazon. I've got Alexa. Don't, some of you do too. I can listen to the best musicians in the world. But man, then there's something that happens where suddenly guitar playing and singing is just not guitar playing and singing anymore. You know what it is? It's the anointing. It's not the lights and the fog machines. Those things are tools and they're good. It's not cool outfits and I used to wear suits, you know. It's not, it's not how we dress. It's not, no, no. It's the anointing. I feel like I'm pounding a drum. I'm, I'm programming you. Um, this is, <laughs> watch me very closely. <laughs> it's the anointing that breaks the yoke. It's the anointing that sets the captive free. Jesus, with all wisdom and knowledge, says it's the Spirit of God that has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set at liberty those that are bound, to bring healing to the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those that are in bondage. It's the anointing working in me. And then Peter stands and says, as he preaches that sermon in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and he says, how God anointed Jesus who went about doing all manner of good and healing all who were sick and oppressed by the devil, the anointing. Stand with me, would you? How central is the anointing to Christianity? How, how big a deal is it? Oh, Brother Brasfield, how big is... What you talking about this anointing? Is that really that big a deal? I thought that was like for old preachers and, and Pentecostal mothers. And <laughs> Is the anointing really that big a deal? Why don't you give me five principles? And I do. Yesterday I gave them principles for... I mean, that's, I get, I'm not knocking that. I hate folks to get up and preach about stuff like it's no good when it's really not that. It's What I'm trying to say to you is the thing that brings change is the anointing. You know how big a deal it is? It, it's, it's a big enough deal that Jesus made it his last name. Now how, how big a deal can it be if Jesus made it his last name? All Christ means... It's a Greek derivative of the Hebrew Mashiach. It just means the anointed one. Here's the one who spoke and the worlds became. Who literally could speak to the dead and them get up. That chose in his own identity, say, in the Hebrew it's Yahshua Hamashiach. Jesus the Messiah. I'm thinking as we close today about him making that trip down the road toward Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on the day he made the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the people gathered along the path and began to sing. 
begin to quote Psalms 118. The stone that the builders rejected. They didn't even know what they were saying. They gathered along that road and you could hear them in the native tongue. Baruch Abashem Adonai. Yeshua HaMashiach Malik Ben David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, the anointed one. King. Son of David. That's who he is. And I just have to tell you today as we get ready to pray that no matter what yoke of bondage this world or life has tried to put on you, I have done my very best to try to preach to you the hope that is in Him. That you don't have to be who they said you were. You don't have to be labeled by that experience in your life. You don't have to, you don't have to be labeled by that moment of trauma or that moment of failure. No, that sin and the sinner that did it died with Jesus on the cross. You say, well, brother, that sounds like universalism. No, universalism says everybody's saved already. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying they could be. I'm not saying everybody's saved. I'm not saying everybody's going to go to heaven. I'm just saying that the blood of Jesus was sufficient for all of us. And nobody has to go to hell. Nobody has to live in guilt, shame, and condemnation anymore. That's why we call it good news. That's the good news right there. You may choose not to allow that anointing to touch your life, and that's up to you. But it's powerful enough to dig you out of any pit and break any shackle and take you out of it. No, no, it's powerful enough to go Rambo on that yoke of bondage and go nuclear. It is God's, the cross was God's nuclear option. And I just want to give you hope today, and then I'm going to pray for you. I just want to give you hope that you don't have to be that. You don't have to struggle with that. You don't have to carry the load and the, the shackles of that shame and drag it around like a ball and chain. And You don't have to. No, no. Jesus paid a price that was high enough to not just free you, but to erase it. One writer tried to capture that idea when he said, he will, how far will He remove your sin from me? As far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's a Hebrew term of infinity. Yes. You go east, you're just as far from the west as you are. You go west. In other words, the idea is He'll take it away. And He'll change your identity. Yes. Okay, so I think you get the idea. If you're here today, just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute.